Welcome to The Real Freedom Show, where we inspire you to pursue your passion to gain time and financial freedom through opportunities in real estate. I'm your host, Mike Swenson. Let's get some real freedom together. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Real Freedom, talking about building time and financial freedom through opportunities in real estate. I am your host, Mike Swenson. And today we've got an awesome story here. We've got Chad Whitfeld. Chad is a serial entrepreneur, actually started his first business as a teenager um, and eventually worked into real estate. Uh, real estate syndications, which we'll dig into a little bit deeper, also does cryptocurrency, helps building systems and processes for people. So just a serial entrepreneur that dabbles in a lot of different things. And that's the beauty of being in real estate is you get to dictate what you do, when you do it, and how you do it for better or for worse. And so we'll uh, talk with Chad here today. Chad, we're so excited to have you on the show. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. Go ahead and give us a little bit of a background about you so folks know, and, and we'll dive in deeper from there. So I grew up uh, super run-of-the-mill middle class, Midwest, Michigan upbringing, right? And mm -hmm. in that place, you're really only destined for one path, right? And that's typically going to be go to school for four, five, six years, get a degree in engineering or finance, go work for one of the large you know, motor companies, automotive companies. At the height of your career, you might make 50, 60 grand, settle down, buy a boat, get the white picket fence and do that whole song and dance. And at a very young age, I was exposed to the other side, right? I started working at a country club uh, with a lot of affluent gentlemen who lived a life that I never even were ex was exposed to before. You know, showing up on a Tuesday afternoon to play golf with their buddies in their new Ferrari that month, you know? And uh, I really quickly learned just through being perspicacious enough to ask questions. None of them were trading time for money. They all owned things and operated things, right? And so I got the knack for this this other side of, of life at a very young age through that experience. And then out of curiosity, did you always feel yourself, okay, I've got to get a good job, get stable benefits and all that? What prompted you to, to move forward on that entrepreneurial path? Because we mentioned about you starting a company at you know age 16 or so. Is that kind of what flipped it in your head mentally, an entrepreneur after that? Well, I think I think from the day one that, you know, I, I came out the womb, I had a I had a larger risk appetite than the average person, right? So okay. you know, five, six, seven years old, I was the kid smashing his head on a curb because I fell off my bike, getting up with a bloody face, like that was fun. Let's do it again, you know. And mm -hmm. so I had that appetite in my genetics, at a very, very young age, and I think that was a huge testament to it. And then also, um, you know, just being living at in such a young, impressionable age and going through the duality of worlds, right? Going from super average, then going to work and being surrounded by extremely affluent people, you go through the duality very, very quickly, day in and day out, and you realize like. Not, money doesn't necessarily buy happiness, but it certainly solves problems and it certainly allows you to afford a life that can make you happy, whether, whether, whether that the meaning of life is for you. Um, oftentimes, it does revolve around having some substantial amount of liquidity and net worth, right? So mm -hmm. um, that spiraled me into being a money-hungry little kid, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I had these two gentlemen. I was 17, 18 years old. Uh, I had these two guys sitting at my bar. One of them had to leave because he didn't want to go and get in the doghouse with his wife because it was taking him too long to finish remodeling the backyard. Mm -hmm. Right. And without thought, I saw a problem that needed fixing. I said, John, let me, I know you just live right down the street, right? Like, let me stop by. I, I bet you I can get that handled for you a lot quicker than you doing it by yourself. You got better things to do. 
that was like the first time I ever sold something, right? It was probably a $4,500 landscaping gig. And I called three of my buddies and said, meet me here tomorrow at 6 a.m. Bring every single tool that you have in your in your parents' garage for gardening. And I'll pay you 25 bucks an hour. And uh, you know, I ran that company for a couple of years. It did six figures a year at a very, very young age, but it never outlived me. Right at that point, I was so young. I didn't understand, you know, building a team, building systems, processes, um, you know, being a leader, and all of those components that to build a company that's bigger than you. Um, and so, yeah, but it was still, nonetheless, a fantastic learning experience and really the first step into into what I call my new world. Had you had any exposure to landscaping? Had you seen it before? Because I know for the people that don't just take action, they might be thinking all these things of what would stop them. And I'm just curious to kind of hear your thought process of how did you come up with 4,500 bucks? How did you know what to do? How did you know how to put the plan together? That's a, that's a fantastic question. Truth be told... Um, you know, I was shaking my head. No, like I had zero experience with landscaping and that is true to an extent. However, um, my mom had me out picking weeds in the backyard, right? Like she had me out mulching the front Island, right? She put me to work because that's what you do as a Midwest boy. You just work and you do what mama told you to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that was my only experience, but no, I just picked a random number that like was enough money that I thought would make sense. You know, at the time I was probably, you know, making 20, 30 bucks an hour as a bartender or something. And it was just a number that made sense uh, in the, in my head. And uh, you know what? I didn't really care. That's the other thing too, is even if, you know, I ended up finishing that out and had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what materials were costing, whatever. I just didn't like care that much because I'm willing to learn, you know, I'm willing to, to put myself through something, even if I don't necessarily, um, know exactly what monetary value is going to come out the other side. Sometimes you just have to have faith in yourself enough to figure it out. And that's essentially what I did. And so I didn't really put much thought and merit into it. Well, and that's awesome to hear because I hear so many people, especially those investing in real estate, they give a ton of reasons why they can't do something. And you saw the value of of learning in the education. And I tell folks a lot of times, let's say you started out by doing a flip on a property and you broke even. Well, you learned a lot and that's going to help you yeah. make more money in the future. And so I love that approach of, I didn't really care because you're going to get experience out of it. Yeah, hundred percent. And I honestly just think that's like the dark horse crutch in the modern day journey is, is becoming a real estate entrepreneur, right? And I call it my mental masturbation theory. And we see this play out time and time again, and ultimately just ends up leading to amateur saturation in really any strategy, any market. And these are the guys who say, I, I'm going to get into wholesaling. I'm going to get in fix and flipping. I'm going to syndicate apartments. I'm going to do Airbnb, whatever. Who cares? They go to seven different conferences that year. They buy three different coaching programs. They, you know, they update their Facebook and their banner and this website and a logo and all this crap, right? And they get to the end of the year and you say, Mike, how many deals did you close this year? And I didn't close any deals. The, <laughs> I didn't close any deals because of the interest rates. I didn't close any deals because the leads suck. I didn't close any deals because of this, because of that. But how many, how many calls, how many people did you call? Right? How many brokers did you go take out to lunch? Right? How many agents did you take out to dinner that week, or that month, or that year? Right? How many how many conversations did you have with with affluent accredited investors that you can offset uh, your wholesale disposed to? Right? Zero. 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 Zeros. And so, yeah. Ultimately, I think an overwhelming majority of people perpetually fall into the trap of learning by education and not by doing. And you just don't know until you get reps. Yeah, it's difficult because people want to be viewed as the expert and you can't really be the expert until you do it. <laughs> and so it's kind of that, that balance of, yeah, you, you got to get some experience first. 
Now, how did that transition for you into getting into real estate? Did that come next then after your landscaping business? I did the landscaping stuff for a couple summers. Uh, it was good. It was fun. Made some money. Learned a lot. Went off to college. Uh, did that for four years. Couldn't didn't care to take the landscaping biz- business with me because uh, up in the Upper Peninsula, in Northern Michigan, uh, it's extremely cold for like seventy percent of the year, right? So that wasn't going to work. So from there, um, I I just arbitraged electronics. And essentially, all that looked like for me was being a kid walking around with a stack of cash. If you had a broken iPhone, iPad, laptop, whatever it was, I'd buy it. I'd buy anything. Um, and then I would go sell it on eBay. As simple as that. Oh. Wouldn't fix them. Wouldn't part them out. Nothing. Just sell them as is for parts uh, on eBay. And uh, another business. Did six figures for two, three years. And... Um, but again, never really grew outside of me. It was just a hustle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, got into another business at 21, failed that company. 23, failed my second company. That one left me pretty penniless and broke. Was on my way moving from Michigan to Denver, Colorado when I found out that a, uh, a disgruntled business partner essentially robbed us blind. Um, hmm. So here I am, Denver, Colorado, broke as a joke. Um, and lost. have no idea what I'm going to do next. And um, as I alluded to earlier, I've been into bikes and toys and all that kind of stuff. And at this point, I couldn't even begin to think about what I needed to do do next. My my entire life's work was just gone, right? And uh, so I need to clear my head. So I go to this bike park with my mountain bike. And truth be told, I strike up a conversation with a guy. I was just looking for a friend, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, He's just getting started doing apartment syndications with a group of guys. And I end up going, meeting those guys, working with them, uh, closing my first deal within that year's 83-unit apartment building. And we've just been just been rocking ever since. What was your role in closing that deal? So you mentioned you had partners. Was yours finding and underwriting deals or what was your role in that first property? I'm an integrator. So uh, building out systems, processes, uh, marketing channels, filling them, you know, and optimizing. Um, and so that, that, so that was seven years ago, right? So at the time, that was me just like throwing up a landing page, writing mm-hmm. like Facebook copy for like some posts and like running an email list, right? We've gone through probably 20 different revisions since then and have now built things out to a remarkably robust process fueled by data, right? And mm-hmm. so, but yeah, it's just funny to, to think about where it all started, to be honest with you. But yeah, we'll build system and processes to acquire uh, accredited investors into real estate funds and syndications, um, and then also support our acquisition guys uh, when their systems and processes to manage brokers relationship and deal flow. How did that grow for you then? I mean, we, we talked offline about what criteria did you guys have? Who came up with that criteria? Kind of how did you land on your sweet spot of where you're at? Like I said, I was never really the underwriter or the acquisitions guy, right? So I really relied heavily on that knowledge and education from my partners. But ultimately, I think a lot of it, especially in right now with the way interest rates are moving, um, and just over the last several years, you know, a lot of people, a lot of new operators came to the space not really knowing what they were doing, um, and now are in negative equity with their investors' money. That's a really, really scary place to be. My expertise is not going out, picking the perfect market, underwriting the data perfectly. like That's not my expertise. So I don't really prefer to talk about that very much. However, what I can say is given that dynamic, knowing that about thyself, 
I know who to partner with, right? I know how to vet and underwrite an operator who knows how uh, to actually take down deals, right? And kind of alluding back to the amateur saturation again, like you just got to be careful with who you work with, regardless of the industry. There's a lot of fake until you make it out there. Well, and I love that you understand yourself and you understand what you're looking for in others to find a fit. I talk about this when I work with investors or work with agents that want to work with investors and they're so hung up on the perfect deal, the perfect market. And I want to bring them back to like, what are you looking to get out of it? What's your time commitment? What's your money commitment? What are your goals? And then you're looking for that yin to your yang. You're looking for somebody that values what you don't have. And hopefully you can add value to where they're looking for value. And that creates a good partnership. hundred percent. And oftentimes, you know, I think, I think one of the most challenging things that I've ever gone through in business and it's, and it's happened on multiple times now. And I like to think by God will it that I've, I've learned my lesson this time, but ultimately I think a misalignment in partnership can lead to the demise of any kingdom. And um, I just think it's a challenging thing, especially getting out the gates, especially if you're just trying to get into your first deal. You're not really thinking about these types of things. And um, truth be told, I think you're do- anyone out there in that position, you're just doing a really, really massive disservice to your future self. Um, of all the conversations I've had with, with high-level seven, eight-figure entrepreneurs, um, they're very, very particular about who they partner with, why they partner with them, and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And so just to unpack that really, really briefly for anyone listening, first and foremost, you don't ever need to partner with somebody who has the exact same set of skill sets as you do. It doesn't make sense, right? So you want to obviously find someone who's complementary to your weaknesses, right? Not complementary to your strengths. That's a waste of equity. Component number two to that is don't value the equity you're giving up at today's valuation. You'd be thinking eight, nine, 10 years down the road, right? Right now, your company might not be worth anything, but 10, down, 10 years down the road, when you got a couple hundred million dollars in assets under management, that 50% of the company <laughs> is worth a lot more to, you know, down the road, right? So put a future valuation on it, right? That doesn't necessarily mean the bank is going to give you that valuation, right? But for yourself, mm-hmm. uh, it can be a really, really important thing. And then component number three, uh, properly structuring out your operating agreements. Right, rules, responsibilities, um, having you know KPIs, metrics to hold people accountable to, and claw back their provisions when they don't uh, meet meet or exceed um, that level of productivity. Right, mm-hmm. um, it happens all the time. I've seen it happen all the time. Guy gets into business with so and so. So and so goes through a life event, basically just leaves the business high and dry, and still bleeds to fifty percent of its equity. Don't follow, find yourself there either. Now, I know for some people in syndications, talking about maybe the general partner side, some people like to stick with the same group of people. You work well together. You've kind of got that shared vision. Some people, it's deal by deal. Some people are in the middle of another deal, so they're not available for this deal. So some people kind of just pair up for one particular property. What's been your experience? Are you kind of sticking with the same group or are you kind of putting them together based on the individual situation or how does that look? Yeah. So we work with a multitude of groups and we come in as growth partners. Um, and waterfall into equity into either the fund or the deals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every group that we've worked with since the beginning, we still work with today, right? And um, a large component of that is just like, I'm not an operator, an operator, right? I'm not mm-hmm. the guy who's going to manage the manager. Um, I'm, not, I'm not that guy, right? We come in as support. 
Um, oftentimes, I have found that a lot of the companies we work with are still on fairly archaic systems and processes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've worked with a company who had you know over a hundred million dollars assets under management, and they're managing their um, their capital stack with an Excel sheet. Right, not a good place to be. <laughs> so, so it allows me to come in, uh, repeat our process, and and capture upside for providing the value to the team. You had mentioned before apartments and self-storage are, are typically where you're sticking to. Yeah. Yeah. So it started with apartments. A good friend of mine down in Texas uh, was doing developments. I did a, came into one of his deals as a limited partner and really enjoyed um, having more of an intimate look on the process behind it for the first time. Um, and yeah, it just led me to really enjoy the asset class. And so we started working with it a little bit more intimately. And then you had mentioned too that you also do crypto or maybe some additional investments in addition to that. How how did that come about and how long have you been doing that for? It really came down the model of just from real estate, like the monthly recurring revenues, right? And so about two and a half years ago, I went home to Michigan to visit for like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And a really, really good friend of mine, he's actually, uh, he's the one who got me into Bitcoin at 100 a couple hundred bucks when we were kids. Like he was just the nerdy kid who geeked out over like the dark web and the Silk Road, right? And that's how I, you know, found out what Bitcoin was so long ago. Um, he had a single family rental property, and um, I wanted to go check it out. And it turns out, instead of releasing to his tenant that year, he just decided to start mining Ethereum in this house. And I will never forget it for the rest of my life. I walk into this house. And there's cords and Ethernet and fans and just everywhere. It looks like an alien hive out of a movie. And uh, he pulls up his operating system and just shows me shows me the numbers, just showed me the money, right? And I was like, yeah, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't have re-rented this either, right? And just having such an intimate look to see um, how much money he was making, fairly semi-passively mining Ethereum. Um, I was just hooked and I flew home, bought my first mining rig, uh, set it up in my house. And pretty quickly that scaled into a much larger operation with a partner. Um, and we did that for, for about a year and a half, made an exit and, uh, yeah, it was, it was easily the best cash on cash return I've ever experienced out of any investment I've ever made. Um, unfortunately the party just had to stop and I just chose to leave the party, uh, before it was a little too late, you know, and so yeah, made a nice exit on that. And so, um, I just think for me, it's just about being aware of opportunity and see what's in your wheelhouse, see what what you can make sense of, and uh, being able to manage your risk accordingly is is really the name of my game. And what uh, is your thinking about the future here? Are you still wanting to focus on putting together those syndication deals, or are you looking into other things? What are your goals for the future? You know, for me, there's a couple th- different things there. One, yes, I am still very, very focused on uh, you know acquiring more positions of equity. Right, of course, I am. Um, Number two, I have such a hard time. I have such a hard time like self limiting of what I will do. Right. And the reason why I say that is because if you asked me 10 years ago that I would be here where I'm at doing the things I've done, I would be like, you're out of your mind. There's no way. Right. And so for me, I really try to just keep a very, very dynamic and open mindset to opportunity. However, at the same time, just knowing what to look for inside of opportunities, because I get approached and pitch things almost every day. 
mm-hmm. you know? And so being able to protect your time, your focus, your energy is obviously extraordinarily important, but there's a balance between that side of it and being too close minded off to missing out on some serious opportunity. Eventually at the end, all goal is to be a KP on commercial deals, right? Be the guy signing on the loan with his experience, his liquidity and his net worth uh, to move the deal across the table and taking a percentage uh, for providing that service. That w- That is the goal down the road. I still got some work to do. <laughs> now, I know some people feel like, okay, when I'm young, I just want to push forward and grind as hard as I can. For some people, it's, hey, I want to do that. But at the same time, I want to enjoy the rest of my life and do things outside of work. Where do you fit on that spectrum? Are you just kind of a grind all day, every day? Or is it stop and go out for hikes or go out and, and explore hobbies and that kind of thing? I live a, a very uh, well-balanced life. I don't I don't spend 50, 60 hours a week working, that's for sure. I spend a lot of time on my hobbies, my passions, my relationships, my health, my faith, all of, all those strong core components. And you know, staying grounded to the reason why I'm doing this in the first place. However, that's not always the case, especially in the beginning, right? I'm 30. I've been at this since I was a kid, you know, and especially going through, you go through seasons, you know, obviously you want to eliminate those seasons. But for me, I had to go through those seasons and um, pulling myself out of a really, really cold, dark season was a very challenging one. And I look back on that and just, you know, for me, I think... I think when you're young and you're, you're in your 20s, I think personally grinding and sacrificing and getting to that place as quickly as possible makes a lot of sense, right? And I talk, I talk to young guys about this all the time. For me, that number was 100 grand cash liquid, right? Getting to 100 grand in cash as quickly as you possibly can, I think is a very, very valuable thing because at that point... You're not necessarily worried. You're not necessarily worried about paying your bills for a while. You're not worried about, you know, spending sixty bucks on a dinner. Like a lot of little clouding things go away, right? And I think once you're there, you can start to flip the script and flip the mindset to start thinking more about abundance and making uh, more long-term decisions because your short-term needs are met. And to be quite frank. When you do, when you make that decision to cut out the, you know, twenty to twenty-five, those years of most people's lives is spent on crap anyways. They're out drinking, they're out partying, they're out doing drugs, they're out getting in trouble, they're out hanging out with people that they shouldn't be around in the first place. And so, if you're a young man, I think you're going to be far better suited off sacrificing, uh, grinding your life away for you know sixty, seventy hours a week, saying no to a lot of the crap that's not going to serve you anyways. Get that capital stack. 25 to 30, um, building skills. Obviously, you're doing that in the beginning too. Networks, skills, um, and putting deals together and starting thinking about larger, you know, larger long-term uh, value and opportunity. Have you ever heard the phrase, you're the average of the top five people that you hang around? Well, real estate agents, I'm excited to increase your five with you. We're launching the Real Freedom Investor Agent Tribe to help you get educated and connect with others to build your real estate investing journey and also to help you along the way as you're working with real estate investors. So come check it out on our website, realfreedom.com. Go to the store. We have a membership. We have a mastermind group and private coaching to help you stay accountable to your real estate investing goals and to make sure that you connect with like-minded people to accelerate your progress and to cheer you on along the way. Check it out, realfreedom.com. 
click on the store. Chad, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. For people that want to learn more about you and kind of what you're up to, how can they do that? Yeah, you can just find me on social media. It's at Chad Whitfelt and come say hello. Well, thank you so much, Chad, for coming on. Appreciate what you're sharing and best of luck to you in the future. 